This is the Evolution Exchange podcast, a channel that connects some of the most successful technical leaders in the Nordics region. I'm Andy. I help connect businesses with the best UX and UI freelance talent. And today I'm your host. Welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. So we've got another great topic to discuss today with three fantastic guests and a lot of great questions. So we're going to be discussing what are the key principles to consider in level and game design. And joining me today, I've got Emma, who's a lead UX designer at Frozen Byte. Matthew's a game design director at Rovio, and Vinicius, who's a lead level designer at Tactile Games. So like I said, we're going to discuss what are the key principles to consider in leveling game design. But before we jump into the questions that our guests have provided, we're going to work uh, around the room and do some introductions. So Vince, please could you kick us off with your introduction? Sure thing. Uh, thanks for having me here, Andy, and uh, a great moment to everyone that is listening to us in, our, in their homes or their uh, workspaces. Uh, I'm Vinicius, or Vince, as uh, people tend to call me, tends to be easier for the Nordics to pronounce that. Uh, I've been uh, at Tactile for six years, uh, lead level designer for uh, half of that time. We make uh, mobile free-to-play games, uh, uh, mostly uh, you know match three collapse games, some pop games. Uh, I've been there since there was like 20 people. Now we are like... 200 to 300 with offices in the UK, uh, here in Copenhagen, uh, Tenerife uh, expanding, also working with offices in Argentina and Poland and probably other places at this point. Maybe this week they might have uh, gotten offices in two more other places in the world because things are growing insanely. I'm uh, originally from Brazil, so uh, to all the Brazilians out there, fora Bolsonaro. Um, originally from the up to city of uh, São Caetano do Sul in São Paulo. I've uh, studied uh, game design uh, back in Brazil, then did my master's at uh, IT University of Copenhagen. And after that, I've been from Tactile ever since. So that's uh, pretty much my trajectory. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Vince. I appreciate it. Uh, Matt, please, could you give us your introduction then? Hey, so um, I'm Matt Buxton. I'm the game design director of the Rovio Stockholm studio. I've been here for around about two years now. Um, previous to that, I was also based at Stockholm, design director at Mag Interactive, make wording, word and puzzle games. Before that, I was um, in Berlin for King, previously Miniclip in Portugal, um, Jagex, in England. So I've traveled around a bit and I started off as a 3D artist way back in 2004, 2005, I think, um, making making sort of shovelware games around the time the PS2 got given to all the little brothers and sisters. So <laughs> that's about um, that's about me. So I've been in uh, like 16 years or so. Perfect. Thank you very much, Matt. And lastly, then, Emma, welcome to you for your introduction. Hi everyone. Yeah, it sounds like I'm the junior of the group. I've been in games for past five years, all of them with Frozen Byte in Finland. And before that, I was uh, an IT consultant doing different things from robotic process automation to um, programming and all these things, but always having a UX lens. And for the past five years, I've been living my childhood dream of like making games and then my adulthood dream of working in UX, so it's all worked out really well. Um, I'm also the outlier in the sense that we do PC and console games, so no mobile games in my path. 
but yeah, I'm the UX lead. So basically what I've been working on is UX maturity, like UR or user research and like the culture and like where we keep players first and obviously everyone always does, but with UX it's like, oh yeah, what is the experience that player has instead of this is my one thing or like the mechanic that I'm working on and I'm sure that this is great, but how does it fit with everything else? Fantastic. Thank you very much. And I've just realised this might be my first podcast where each guest is from a different country. So we've got the full Nordic <laughs> set, Denmark, Sweden and Finland and a bit of UK in there as well. <laughs> so there we go. Uh, uh, Norway well, is very sad right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We needed a fourth. <laughs> uh, well, we're going to get straight into the questions then, because uh, we've got a lot to go through. So Emma, you're, you're going to kick us off with the first question today. So let's hear from you then. Yeah. Well, as a UX person, I'm very interested to hear your stance on what is the role of UX design in relation to game design as a whole? Okay, and what are your what are your first initial thoughts on that then before we, we ask Matt or Vince? Um, my thoughts are that it's like, it's complementary to game design. So kind of a different lens. Um, like what you have in production is like you have a person handling production and doing all these things and doing that throughout the development process and UX is also a similar thing that like it is a different lens to think or what see things through but what I often see and in some conversations I've had is that UX is the icing on the cake whether that's in tech or games but like especially in games many people think that UX is UI or menus and then that's tacked on at the very end hmm. and I disagree with that wholeheartedly, but I would love to hear what you think. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, well, uh, Matt, let's come to you first then. Well, so um, I'm in firm agreement with that, Emma. We have a, a fantastic um, senior UX designer, uh, Brazilian, that we stole from Paradox. Um, and, <laughs> uh, her name's Valeska, and she's heading up the UX on one of our one of our sort of flagship products. And it's not just a craft that is added at the end for us. It's integral to creating everything from screen flows to first time user experiences to onboarding, working out how much cognitive load each level gives, working out where um, where we should be placing things. And there is obviously there is a gateway between um, art and design and UX can fill some of that role. But we have UI artists and we have UI UX people as well. And that's kind of like the unicorn that everyone looks for, a UI UX artist. But I think it's um, with some someone who's more pure UX, we can go down the UR route as well. So there is both um, there is both the stage of researching what we want to build for who and whether our designs are going to work for them. And then going into the sort of the more meat of the craft, which is Figma and working through those things and making sure that you have a document with a Figma support. And finally, after that UX transfers into working with the artists to make sure that the UI follows the rules that they have set out. And maybe we we actually, for each game, we have a UX guide or a set of guidelines um, that should be adhered to, to make everything a lot easier. So that's kind of how we, we look at it. It's integral, but it has three sort of strands, research, initial um, blocking out and laying down and then finally sort of working together with design and art. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah, perfect. Thank you, Matt. Um, go on, Emma. Did you want to respond to, to Matt there before we come to Vince? 
No, actually, I'd love to hear what Vince has to say. I have a lot to take in because <laughs> obviously our structure and the like company size is very, or studio size is very different. So yeah, that was yeah. really cool to hear though. Go on then, Vince. Yeah, and that's actually a really good point because uh, I think coming from Tactile and how much we grew on uh, on the last few years, um, there was no UX design before. It was just, you know, small teams trying to grow figure out what is the, the direction of the game and figure out what is the experience that we're going to have and kind of work with it and uh, and making assumptions as we go, uh, A-B testing whatever we can, then figuring out, you know, are we uh, creating the experience that we expect? Is the, the difficulty of the levels, uh, the, the rhythm of introducing pieces uh, for games going well? Should we, you know, um, at what point do we add, you know, more content for the players? and has been a lot more craft and science for us. Uh, with uh, the growth that we experienced recently, now we have a uh, user research team that is helping us uh, kind of science the shit out of everything that we've uh, intuited so far. So uh, it's already leading to a lot of interesting uh, advancements, uh, things that uh, we had an idea that would work. Uh, now we definitely prove that they do work. Uh, and uh, and also uh, breaking some taboos on things that we thought would be the case. And uh, it seems like, you know, the experience doesn't depend that much uh, on that uh, as we would expect. So um, I think Matt describes uh, the a really good scenario with, uh, with a lot of resources and with a good team size. I am hoping that we're getting there very soon, uh, but still we are, you know, small teams growing. Our products is out in the market as well. So big changes is, uh, you know, takes little steps until we actually make a big, uh, big change. So uh, I hope that answered it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was really cool. I didn't really say how we do things at Frozenbyte, but I, when I started, I was, and I still kind of am the only person with UX in their title. Um, so I've been doing a lot of jumping between projects and sort of getting in earlier and earlier with each one. My first game project, it was, it was very hectic because it was basically I was asked to give my seal of approval to all the menus so they can mm -hmm. be done within the next month. And then I think we finished everything six months or so after I like jumped in. <laughs> Whereas with other projects, I've been like joining earlier and earlier. But there was a lot of also like, oh, yeah, you just do UI things. So that's fine because we we've got the game experience and all that down. And well, luckily for the company, they have very good um, like instincts in terms of what works well but it's been fun to sort of insert a little bit of science and like tools with which people can then kind of reflect on oh yeah this is why this works or I'm not sure why this works before it was like just guessing and then seeing how it pans out but now they have more tools and like they can discuss things and that's been very rewarding for everyone but yeah um, in terms of like general discussions I've had with people outside of the company it's been interesting to talk to even UX professionals professionals on what they think the answer to this question is because that depends on their background very heavily mm. i have a very technical background like i like i said i was a programmer before i was studying human computer interaction in university so that's my U understanding of ux and everything so to me uh, design and research are the flip sides of the same coin and it's very helpful to understand both things Whereas a lot of people, especially in games, they come in from the art side, they are 2D artists, then they've been asked to work on a menu and then they realize, oh yeah, there are all these rules that apply to these things. So then they get in the world of UX and that's to them then 
the only thing that UX touches. And in mainstream UX, that is everything there is because there's not a, like a different experience or a separate experience when you're buying something from Amazon, it always happens through the user interface. But with games, there are several layers to the experience and that's sometimes difficult for people to grasp. That's a really interesting first question uh, and some <laughs> great points that come out of it. So it's a good one to kick us off. But as I, you can uh, ask, ask your second question as well, Emma, because we'll, we'll, we'll go to each today. Okay, sure. Um, my second question is, how do you define the core of a game? Is it mechanics or feelings evoked or something else? Um, and yeah, that's something I've had discussions with with different people, because some people it's very much like, this is the mechanic that I build the game around. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think it's a very viable thing, but at some point it's led to very mm, unflexible solutions. Because then you come up with a story or something and then, oh yeah, it's all about loneliness or whatever. And at some point the mechanic can kind of be in juxtaposition or like fight against the like feeling you're trying to evoke. Mm. And it's a different thing to resolve because now you're invested in both things and then, well, which one is more important? And that is an interesting thought experiment to have. But yeah, I kind of me answering this whole thing is like, oh, there there's no right answer. But... <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Like, how do you approach things? Well, go on then, Vince. Let's come to you. What What would you define the, the core of a game to be? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it depends on on your project, on where you're going to, and and yeah, because uh, I think for what I've been doing in the past few years in terms of uh, match theory mechanics and everything, it goes hand in hand a bit with like. Is there going to be a narrative in the game? If so, what are the elements there that we can use within the game? Um, and, uh, and kind of like one thing pushing the other. And I guess um, maybe that's not, uh, um, I don't know. I don't have a perfect example because, so let's take, for example, in Lily's Garden that I've been working the most. I don't know if you guys know Lily's Garden. So match three game with uh, this yeah, big narrative. So the you could say like the core of the game kind of doesn't touch the the narrative that much it's mostly like the theming and everything and that's kind of what's brought to the game but i think when we're thinking about like what are the the what is going to be the meta game and what are the the extra features that we are adding then we're also mining with the idea of what is the core of lily's garden what is it about what are these characters what are they doing within the garden and the garden is usually playing a lot of uh, you know, it's a big part of the theme, even though like they change locations and so on, but we're usually taking like, you know, um, let's use flowers or, or growing things as, as part of the themes. And, uh, and I think it also goes with how we usually take some pieces that we design to the game. We tend to want to design things that are more about growing than about breaking, even though that's also a part of, you know, cleaning the garden, uh, getting rid of weeds. But we want things that are more about growing, or at least we're trying to have more of them for uh, for future developments. And I think that's kind of how it goes. Um, I guess also Lily's Garden became viral because of uh, some um, some ads about uh, pregnancy tests and uh, frozen babies. Um, we have not in invoked any of these in the games uh, so far. Uh, we are always thinking about like how to bring these emotions of like caring and uh and and of you know relationship which is kind of what also pass on to the ads and uh and, you know the marketing department plays with um mm. 
uh, I we have not included frozen babies in the game. I swear. <laughs> so, and yeah, I kind of hope that we don't. It seems like, uh, yeah, or, or maybe I don't know. Maybe we'll find like a tasteful way of doing it, but uh, that that tends to be not within the levels. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, Matt. Let's come to you then on uh, the back of Emma's second question. So I mean. Uh, Again, I'm going to also sort of slightly dodge the question, say it really <laughs> depends on your game. Um, but there is, there, I'm kind of lucky working in mobile as opposed to when I started off working on big game memos. There is, there's so many things you can do in AAA games because your character is way more capable. So my rough definition, and I like to keep it relatively rough, is the thing that you do the majority of the time, like the thing that actively, that you actively do, um, and that's as, it's less about, depends on your type of game, it's less about choosing, it's more about um, actively doing something. So if there's a skill component, it's playing that. Even if, I guess, um, not that we make them, but even if it was just watching something happen like a slot machine, that would still be the core, it's the active part, the, the thing that happens the fastest, essentially. Um, and for me, outside of that, the meta is anything that improves your capacity as a player to do this, um, to do this thing. So the meta is anything that you jump into and you make decisions um, or sort of for a long-term state that improves your ability to carry out that core. Um, and it's part of why we, we've mo we're moving away in um, Stockholm from having level designers and calling people level designers, even if we are making something more like a puzzle game. The reason for that is a like core gameplay and gameplay design is not just about sitting in front of Unity um, like fiddling with things and making stuff drop faster. There is actually everything that is involved in that. So if you're talking about the story um, in, in your game, it's it's very important. Lily's Garden has a great story. And that is part of the core because that's one of the things that, they, that the player is interested in. So whereas if it's Candy Crush without a story, you can say the core is easy to define. But if your core is really like renovating a house plus... Uh, match three you can't really say the renovating the house is too much of the meta the meta is more about like do i do i win the level and get a bunch of power-ups that i then have to save do i have something in the background giving me power-ups or drip feeding me currency those are more the meta features so i really don't want level designers to be stuck in just sitting in front of that i want gameplay designers who are capable of de designing every single feature from when you press play to when you leave the game um so that's kind of my definition of core but it's um the core i guess is wider when you're when you're doing triple a so maybe it would be really nice emma to hear your definition of what you think the core is for a triple a title yeah i don't have as well defined a definition as you did but um i can bring in an example that we had and with one of our games uh we like this was, I think, 2017, we launched a game called Nine Parchments, where it it began. I wasn't there when like the development started, but the core mechanic of it, that is that you can shoot spells and it affects everyone the same way, enemies and uh, allies alike. And it's a cooperation or co-op game up to four players. And that like we never questioned that in a sense. And then we launched it and we got quite like I don't remember how many but in, enough to spark a conversation of like requests to remove friendly fire from the game, game completely because it was very much a PG game it was like it, 
like the art was very family friendly and child friendly. So there were a lot of people who wanted to play with their children. Also, there was some accessibility discussions regarding this as well. Uh, so we started discussing like, well, that that is actually the core of the game. And like, eventually, I think the leads did not want to budge on that because that was what the entire game was built on. And then we started discussing this. I like I brought in the lenses. Well, it like is that the core? Is the core being together and like causing magical mayhem anyway? And I think, yeah, in the end, we ended up not removing it completely, but adding uh, a slider so you can move it down to fifty percent, so it hurts enemies one hundred percent and allies only fifty percent. But this was an in, uh, interesting discussion and thought experiment to have, like. What is more important? Because to me, somehow it was, oh, well, this is a game you play with your friends and family and have a good time with and like magical mayhem and like sparks and like lightning everywhere. Whereas to some people, it was very much mechanic and then everything else came from that. And mm. there was no wrong answer. It was a decision that had to be made. This reminds me of, uh, sorry, jumping in. Reminds no me problem. of a little story from uh, when uh, I had started on Tactile. We were working on cookie cats. And it's a simple game. It's about cookies and it's about cats. And you collect cookies and the cats sing. And, you know, that's kind of the core of it. Uh, but before we went, uh, we started user testing and we had the first concept for the pieces. I think what one of the artists had made one of the cookies, instead of being a cookie, was a cup of coffee. And, uh, and I think they just wanted to experiment with it. And uh, and I remember at some point I turned to them and huh, have you guys noticed that in our game, a, a cup of coffee is a type of cookie? Uh, I mean, it sounds nonsense, right? And uh, the first thing that we got when we got one person playing the game is they saw the cup of coffee and they were like, I'm not sure if I understand this. And we're like, there you go, you know, <laughs> we're talking about cookies, we're talking about cats, there's a coffee cup that we pretend it's a, it's a cookie, it makes no sense, right? Then immediately it was changed. So I think it is part of this of kind of finding what is the core of the game? How do we develop this further? And it was, I think we've never done such a nonsensical experimentation mm -hmm. like this, but it was just like, you know, a little bit of joy. I think we were five, six people at the team at that time, uh, at least in Cookie Cats, not in Tech, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And I was reminded by this, like, wonderful experience, not a game I worked on, wish I did, but um, <laughs> The Last of Us Part Two, where there's like, this is a huge spoiler, but I hope people who like have wanted to play that have already played, or if they don't, don't listen for like the next five seconds. <laughs> um, about like toward the end, when you think the game is over, you're like, you've left Seattle, like there is this family life on this farm, everything. And then you realize you have to go back. And that moment was such a gut punch to me. Like, and thinking back, it was just like, well, this was like a nice respite, respite or respite. I don't, <laughs> I don't know English. <laughs> and then you have, like, then you go back and kill some more zombies, and that, like, that's fine. But thematically and in terms of the story, it was very devastating, and it was devast devastating to the entire cast, or like all the characters, but also the player. And I thought that was very, very well done. Mm. And, yeah. and that was well defined as in like what they wanted to be the core and that was the feeling yeah. uh, since we're talking about key principles sorry to budging in again <laughs> no um, worries i i've uh, i've listened to a podcast uh, from um, it's called designer notes with uh, soren johnson he interviewed robin hunicke 
uh, I think that's what her name is, before there was like a fiasco about indie studios uh, independently, right? But she wrote the, the article about uh, mechanics, dynamics, and aesthetics as a framework. And I remember that they were talking about this as like a fantastic turning point for everybody studying games on, on this idea of defining like, what is the aesthetics of the experience and, and how like the mechanics that you're making are gonna lead into play dynamics that reinforce that aesthetics. And I feel like this is a, a perfect example on, on how to uh, how to use it. So, uh, yeah. And that's a great article, by the way. Yeah. Well, fantastic first question. And I'm sure we could uh, talk a lot longer on it as well. Uh, well, first two questions, but we're going to have to move on. We're going to have to go into into the second one. So thank you, Emma, for that first, uh, the first two anyway. Thanks, everyone. Um, and then we're going to move on to the second one. I know we've got a lot, uh, a lot to discuss on this one because uh, we spoke a little bit about it earlier as well. So I'm interested to hear um, thoughts on this. So Matt, I'll hand over to you. Okay. So my next question, and excuse it if it gets slightly spicy, because we've we've had lots <laughs> of opinions about this at our place as well. Um, crypto. NFTs, Web 3.0, what does that mean for fundamental principles of game and level design? Or does it mean anything to you? What does it mean for you, Matt? It's something that I see, um, I see a lot. And I notice that there is, there seems to be um, crypto, a Web 3 is one of the only ways to get studios to work together and, and commonly accept something so if for example you wanted to take one item out of another game into another game by a different company that would never never feature in a million years and mm -hmm. you, you would never get that chance but now with crypto this seems to be a slight possibility and what this does open up is it opens up the ability for someone who has dedicated a lot of time and energy into a say a free-to-play game they've spent maybe quite a significant portion of money, a whale, that does allow them to potentially take the things that they own from that game and transfer them either by sale or by direct moving into another game. So it allows you to potentially cash out, whether that's cashing out in terms of you sell it on some sort of marketplace or whether you cash out in terms of you can take this stuff with you. So I think that is a slight difference that it maybe it gives some value back to people who have wailed a lot in games. Um, and the other thing that I think that for NFTs specifically, there is um, there is something interesting about the whole board apes and all of those things. The, the artist herself who drew them is making money every time they change hands. And this is a different world from when my wife was graduating and and illustrators today being asked by big companies big well-known companies that you know the brands of being told by marketing departments there is no budget for you and you'll be competing with several other illustrators and if you're lucky enough to win you will have the chance for your artwork to be displayed um potentially in whichever form and you will not receive notice of where it is when it is and your name will not be on the artwork but that's meant to be good for you. So there is a very different, a very, very different world where one illustrator's artwork is earning her significant amounts of revenue. Like compared to the total value of the project, she's getting a significant chunk. Whereas compared to the total value of maybe um, a soft drinks marketing campaign, the illustrator 
would be receiving a fraction of a micron of a per percent of that. So I think that's only a good thing. I do, like just before <laughs> letting everyone else jump in, I do, however, think that there are fundamental issues with the fact that NFTs are not being used as licenses to use artwork, which is essentially where I would see they would be good because you can you can sell your artwork online, but people can also go to your website and download it for free and they don't pay you for that. So this whole, would you download an NFT is the same as any digital artist. You can download any digital artist's work from their website. You can put it as your screensaver, you can do whatever, but if you use it commercially, then you're in trouble. Um, mm. I think an NFT doesn't have to actually represent a thing. It represents an agreement with that artist to use that work for the specified purpose. Whether it's your personal profile picture, whether you can make it, put it on cups or whatever, it's an agreement. It's like a license agreement. The problem is they only contain a tiny little bit of code, which points to a website, um, and that link itself can be subverted. So principles there, maybe a bit more work is, is, my, is my sort of thought. Yeah. And uh, oh, go on, Emma. Yeah, I was like, I I was a bit worried when I saw the question. It was like, oh man, this is a spicy topic <laughs> in games because it's like there are very specific type specific types of games and discussions happening. But uh, the way or like the direction you took the conversation is very much where I wanted to steer and kind of maybe cop out because um, <laughs> what I've seen or like I don't know very much about blockchain or nfts or anything but um what i've researched is that that is exactly what it's good for for like knowing the origin origin of things and they've done this at, at least i think in music where someone can sing a song and someone can create a tune and then they can be combined and then like later on used in something else or remixed or whatever and then everyone in that chain gets paid because now with blockchain there is a way to identify who did what at what point and this is a huge opportunity for creators. For like, if you create assets in Unity, say you create a character model and then someone else creates clothes for it and sells it as a package and someone else animates that thing and then sells that as a package. And then someone else just like buys the different things or like, I don't know, adds shaders and like packages differently. And like, it can be sold in many different ways, but now there's no risk of like, oh, am I like, creating legal trouble for myself at my stealing work because everyone knows who did what and when someone buys this the money can be distributed evenly and fairly among people but in terms of nft games and like games with nfts i haven't heard any good examples from those yet because like the idea of oh yeah you play a game and then oh you can cash out and earn money that's wonderful but what we've seen so far is oh yeah you have to put in way more money than it for a triple a game and you can potentially maybe make that money back at some point so it's kind of a very exclusive club and turning out to be very exploitative in some cases and that's not something people want necessarily i don't mm. think gamers or developers really want this but until we kind of figure this out and have like like this is very new. So once we figure things out better and maybe NFTs die out completely or we figure out how to use them nicely or like very well, will will remain to be seen. But I don't want to be one of the people experimenting with NFTs, especially <laughs> maybe blockchain. <laughs> okay. Uh Vince, you've got yours is a slightly different opinion. Um so I'm interested uh, to hear from you on this then. Yeah, I um uh, I have Lots of opinions on the matter. 
I, uh, I, I kind of don't know that much about NFTs. I, I mean, I researched a bit. Uh, I have a, a good friend, Maxim. Uh, he is an artist at uh, Tactile. Uh, also, he is joining me at Nordic Game Jam. So if you are listening and you can buy a ticket to Nordic Game Jam, join us. It's, uh, it's going to be fun. Um, well, uh, without further ado, yeah. Maxima, it, this friend of mine, he's a, a big proponent of it. And he comes from the side of like being an artist and, you know, the idea of like, there's this binding contract about royalties and, and how this helps uh, both disrupt the art market and also create a new venue as an art market towards it. Um, personally, I do not believe in that. I mean, I, uh, I accept the fact that there's artists that have like really good art interactive art that uses the, the the technology to its its fullest they're doing like great things with it uh, personally I think the, the the best thing that it's useful for now is funding if you are a designer that is trying to get funding uh, it's the buzzword of the moment say that you're making a crypto game with web 3.0 in a metaverse you're gonna get funding because people don't know a lot about this and people want to put, especially investors, seems like they want to put a lot of money in there. Um, as a designer, I think the only interesting thing for me in there would be designing systems of collectibles that have different values. Um, but I don't think that there's any innovation in terms of NFTs for that regard, because for creation of content, we, it, licensing already exists. There already exists licensing agreements, even as open licenses that uh, that kind of tell you that you can change this, but you have to you know, always keep the chain of, of, uh, of who made what there. So what is really good of and why I think a lot of finance people are really interested into it is the financialization of everything and the ability of actually using the blockchain to figure things out of who did what, who owns what. So I'm personally more interested if I were to make like my own indie project about NFTs, I would check if the user has an NFT and not allow them to play because I don't like them. The, the, the concept of NFTs, I feel like uh, it's it's like, it's deepening the, the hole that we are getting into late stage capitalism by forcing us to have even more ways of ownership that are individual while I feel like the ownership should be, we should experiment with more forms of collective ownership instead. Um, this is an opinion that is mine and not necessarily uh, backed by my employer. So, uh, <laughs> but I don't think they have a problem with this. We, uh, we tend to discuss these things uh, openly. So uh, I do like what Matt said about standardization. And I think there's like really good examples of things with collectibles that uh, have developed like a secondary market where people are able, you know, to make a living out of this. And, uh, and I've been part of these markets because I've been playing Magic the Gathering and now I'm collecting Legos. And all of those hobby-like things just create gigantic markets around it um, where they have to develop a standardization of how to deal with those things. The value gets created. In terms of NFTs, I mean, what defines the trade value of it, right? It's mostly hype. Uh, it's like how much use you have, the perception of how useful it is. So it feels like it becomes this pyramid scheme. So for it to have value, you need companies that actually use this and like continue using it. And, uh, you know, it completely breaks the, the idea of like, what is the labor that you need to input to generate this NFTs? And I guess there's a lot of games that are very like 
these uh, pay-to-earn games, I think uh, a good reference would be uh, uh, one of my uh, teachers from ITU has published an article called uh, Playful Capitalism that uh, I have not finished, but I promise you, Miguel, that I will finish at some <laughs> point. Uh, I did listen to podcasts in Portuguese about it, but uh, I mean, it's it's uh, it's deepening, you know, the the, the exploitation of uh, of you know workers of designers in the sense that I don't feel like it's uh, valuable for us as uh, workers in there. Um, of course, uh, if it's going to give us money and we need to survive, then I guess I mean, like I mentioned, it's it's a great source of funding nowadays. Um, but I mean, we've seen cases where this kind of thing happens. I mean. I mentioned Magic the Gathering, the, the way that like each card can be used in multiple formats, that's one thing, but you still have, you know, the ownership of the thing is not from the player, it's from the company. You have a card, you can sell it, you can make your own format to play how you want. That's fine, that's, you know, the possibility that it allows. NFTs don't usually have that. I hope that, you know, we will see something that, you know, you can take the NFTs that are being generated on, let's say, Lily's Garden 3.0, and you program your Lily's junkyard where you actually use the flowers to, uh, you know, turn them into cars and, and drive really fast. I don't know. Uh, that's the kind of where my mind goes. But we also see like on uh, the Diablo 3, I guess, that they had the, the marketplace that they shut down because very quickly it became something about, you know, exploiting the, the, the drops and that does not lead, you know, to the to the core of the game. And we also see it with uh, the items in the Steam economy. I mean, I farmed so many uh, cards to sell them and, and buy collectibles for Dota and then sell these collectibles to buy more collectibles for Dota. You know, it's none of these things need NFTs to exist. It's all about collectibles and hobbies. And I feel like as designers and if we are going for the, the the hobby approach and understanding how players react with a, with a hobby and so on. I feel like tying ourselves to the blockchain is kind of, there are, there are advantages there. I, I see that there can be use cases, but I mean, I, I want to be proven wrong here, but I feel <laughs> like it's just deepening the whole of, uh, of, that we have in society. Well, let's come back to you then, Matt since it was, it was your question after hearing from uh, Emma and Vince there. So thank you first, Emma and, and Vince, for, for how you sort of perceive this as well. And, and I understand that it's not a topic that everyone sort of delves into on a daily basis. And I just want to say I am, I'm pretty much aligned, Emma, with the, with the chain of ownership. And I'm, I'm pretty sure Vince, your friend, as an artist, appreciates this as well. I think people benefiting from creating things is the opposite of exploitation It is literally the opposite of exploitation because I have seen the exploitation that has happened to artists by large companies when they don't have any power at all, when they have zero power and when they're like freshly graduated. And it is very easy for companies to just take that labor and to use that labor in, in very, in very valuable campaigns without them benefiting at all from it. And then they sign that over in perpetuity for the chance of exposure. So I'm, I'm pretty much aligned on that. Where I think there is um, uh, a bit of a difference from me and you, Vince, is I think that there is actually value in bringing collectibles 
out of a game, which you currently cannot do. I cannot take, say, for example, just um, Magic Arena. I can't take my Magic Arena cards and sell them to anyone without breaking their EULA. I, I can't I can't do that without breaking their terms and conditions. Once you introduce NFTs into the game, the NFT does not care like where it comes from. And I can sell that on any NFT market. I am free to charge whatever price I like for it. They lose control. And I think this is one of the things that um, I think you might be more interested in is decentralized organizations, the, the DAOs and the agreements and those tokens. It's not just about speculation. It's about actual players owning the game. All right, Emma, you're first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I just wanted to point out that I agree very much on Vince's stands on NFTs because those are very different from like blockchain. Like they use the blockchain, but they're different because NFTs is like this is the one thing that exists for perpetuity and like you can't replicate it because of reasons and yeah, because of the way it's built. And currently in art, um, there have been many instances where artists find themselves like find their art being sold by someone else and someone else is benefiting from their work. There has been cases of dead artists work being turned into an NFT and being sold. And in a sense, I feel that once you have like this one picture that only one person can own at a time, especially when it's in digital format, is kind of going against the idea of creating digital art uh, to begin with, because well, like you said, it should be a license instead of like you own the picture forever. But yeah, um, in terms of like there are uses for things like finding their or origin and everything, but NFTs, I don't like them, <laughs> like Vince said. Before we go to Vince, Matt, did you just want to come back on just something that Emma said? I think it'll be on the same sort of topic. Yeah, exa exactly. So um, I totally, I totally agree with um, your your point on if your work is stolen and someone makes an NFT of it. Yes, that NFT does exist, but it is functionally the same of me going to an artist's website, printing out something and using it on ten thousand mouse mats and selling them. That is illegal. That is is definitely illegal to do that. And while it it's very difficult to stop someone or catch them that should not happen um and i don't necessarily think that just because it is relatively easy as a, as a process to do that undermines the entire value of it for the artist who originally creates it or well, it's it's very easy to even potentially pose as a digital artist by getting a bunch of different stuff from uh, from deviant art that looks roughly similar and you could even pose as a concepting house um it is possible to do this and because there is money in it it does attract scammers is what i think and i think when the market matures when it cools down a lot um as you were saying vince it's a funding buzzword but when it cools down a lot when it matures a lot i think what i'm hoping is the upshot that comes out of it is um gamers who spend maybe thousands or hundreds of thousands in games and currently cannot get a single cent of that out have that ability and artists who would never get paid for something will never be in that situation again. And they get money every time it's sold on. So, yeah. And Vince, before we, because I know you, we've got your question as well. So just lastly, your your last uh, sort of thoughts on that. Oh, yeah, I noted a few points here. Um, so sorry if I take a little while here. Um, but I, I, I think we're all in agreement that 
it's a good thing that artists are getting paid by things. But, uh, but I would like to point out that we already have legislation, like Matt pointed out, to see what is illegal or not. And uh, the fact that something is in the blockchain does not change the fact that somebody that wants to use some kind of art does not need to use it. He can just hire a, uh, a new employee that just came out of fresh from the university and, you know, exploit that labor instead. Uh, and we also have, you know, a legislation that talks about uh, fair use of art and, uh, and how much you can, you know, change something until it's something that is a new interpretation, a new piece of art. And uh, in, in that case, I mean, I'm not going to say that I completely agree with this, but it feels like society has already figured out a way where, you know, enough changes lead to fair use. And I would go with that more than say, you know, it's in the blockchain and somebody should be making money about it. And, uh, and I guess what, uh, what Matt mentioned of like allowing people to be creative and, and you know, uh, surviving from it and, and uh, you know, having, you know, recognition from the fact that they are being, you know, creators. I feel like the best way to allow people to be creative is create an environment where they are, you know, supported. And so, you know, supportive society where they can actually, you know, create their things instead of necessarily having to uh, sell their work as an NFT to, you know, have any value to society. And I feel like, especially talking about game pieces, one of the fundamental principles of games and what, you know, people seem to agree is that games are autotelic. So their, uh, their meaning is on, on itself. Uh, when you create something that is, you know, a piece that can be exploited for something else or that can be, you know, exchangeable, that thing is a thing on its own that no longer is part of the game itself. And it has been done before. In fact, uh, I kind of talked about it in my master's thesis about how, among other things, how, you know, companies that create NFTs in real life called Wizard of the Coast create, you know, magic cards uh, where players can use the way that they want. Players figure out a format that was super popular and whoever plays Magic knows Commander uh, was a format that was, you know, created by players. Uh, the company saw that that makes a lot of money is selling a lot of product. What they did, they absorbed it into part of something that the company can do. So it's not that I feel like players cannot profit from this, that they cannot, you know, take their game pieces and do something else is that I just feel that the nature of capitalism and the fact that, you know, the creators of it are the owners of, you know, both the AP and the fact that, that you know, they have, you know, the, the means of production, oh, sorry for being the, the communist propagandist here, but, you know, they are also, you know, the people that are able to absorb the efforts of this and, and kind of just, yeah, absorb the efforts and make it so that now that thing that was, you know, uh, a group of people now they are part of a bigger company and uh, and soon they no longer have you know full creative efforts they always have their name in the credits there they always have a trickle of it but they no longer you know control what kinds of pieces and i guess the question would be what kind of game would uh, magic be if like five different companies release magic cards and what are the incentives for each of the companies to create different nft pieces uh to you know for different things and this is specifically nfts as game pieces i think the, the part about art uh it connects but not always that much so uh so sorry for for this great divider but uh, but that's you know my opinion i see everybody has raised or oh, just matt has raised his hand so yeah no, so i was just going to say matt if you want to come literally 30 seconds before yeah, we, we move 30 on seconds. so i i do i do think that there is um there is a little bit of a say maybe a difference of opinion there that i think that the artist who creates 
something has the means of production and that means they own that means of production they are the person who can produce it and they're the person who can lock it down very simply and reasonably inexpensively so that's why i'd say there's a bit of a difference on that side i personally think that magic the gathering it's fantastic until people come and proxy cards and they don't want you to do that right so there is this whole thing that there is a genuine magic card there is a, they they're fraud protected for a reason um, and that, I think, has always been part of collectible games and card games. Of course, I can write my own cards, um, but they're not legal within that world. So I think there is there is a lot of intersections, and I, I, I really appreciate your um, your honest comments on that as well. And it's a, it is a great question. Probably we could do a full podcast on it, I imagine. <laughs> so... Maybe another one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but we, we'll move on just because I'm conscious of time. Uh, and we need to get Vince's last question in. So, Vince, please, can you give us your question then? Absolutely. And sorry for taking so long with my answer. <laughs> no I do problem. have a lot of opinions on this. <laughs> I disagree with the artists actually having the means of production, but that leads into a whole other discussion. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, sorry for that. Um, so uh, how much does uh, user testing, uh, user research, prototyping plays a role for you in defining the core of your game or the levels of your game? And, and how does it help redefine it? I think this is a little bit of like what we talk on Emma's question, but uh, but yeah, how how is it like the the whole the whole thing in there? Okay, well we'll go around the room and then we'll come back to you then, Vince. Before we we hear your thoughts, so Emma, let's come to you first. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it does relate to my question a little bit. The way my company works is that there is a very strong belief in design or auteurs, auteuristic design. So like the designer has the vision and kind of um, has to work it themselves. And then we have, especially in the past, but still currently we test toward the very end. Whereas I'm sort of of the mindset that, you know, maybe we should like, obviously you have the vision, the vision and like that is your job to hold on to that vision and figure out the best way to like make it come alive. But maybe we could test a little bit earlier to see how that vision is being translated or like received by the player. Do they really understand that vision or do they misunderstand it somehow? Um, is it clear enough? Do we need to adjust something? So I think testing is a huge part in like ensuring that the core is what you mean it to be. Because when you release the game to the world, it doesn't matter what you intended it to be if players play it very differently. And that I think is one of the greatest parts of video games, especially like we do like PC and console and double A games, I think. So there there is more room maybe to like emergent gameplay rather than some like mobile mm. games that are more strictly around one mechanic. Um, but it's an interesting thing to see how that works. And especially on that side, when there is more emergent gameplay, I think it's more important to test early so you kind of have an idea of different directions that it can go once the game's released. Uh, Matt, what are your thoughts? So, I mean, since working in mobile, we one of the things I've noticed is if we do hacks or game jams, um, user testing actually, like for any concept, happens faster than you think. It It's very, very quick from the moment the designer and the developer sit next to each other and, and they come up with something cool and uh, they want to show it to someone it's unnatural instinct and that that i believe that testing comes right from the start but 
The thing is, it's never recorded. Like, this is the issue. If I think if every little one of those little interactions was like, hey, we showed it to um, the UX and the UX designer says, fantastic, what about this? I think if there was um, if there was a little bit more realization that we are actually testing to start off with and we are taking that feedback, I think then you can actually have a sort of a, a kind of a story that goes through the product as it goes through. But when it when it comes to testing before release, when it comes to soft launch testing, there are some slight differences. For example, if you have a large IP that you're expecting will get a lot of organic traffic, you have to be very careful about when you release that because if you release something too early and your players' expectations are very, very high, um, releasing something incredibly early, which is branded with the same title, could do a lot of damage. And when we've seen this with some early access releases and much of what uh, much awaited things that they have been released a little too early and then they've suffered for that so i think there is a balance um and it really depends on your ip the your core but i do think that there is testing even if it's internal should happen almost from the moment the first the first time you can hit play before there's even a play button um i think there's there's always testing uh, we just have to get better at recognizing go on emma <laughs> yeah like I really love what you said that there's always testing happening from the very first, like from the very first, and that's something that I kind of thought differently about it when you asked like what testing is because for us and our company there's a lot of testing like oh yeah I designed this part or like this level what do you think because you designed the, the another level within this game and that is um, one sort of testing but it's very informal and it's testing with not the end user or the end player, which can be good in some cases because then they have the context and understand how things will be when you come to this level. So they don't have to have like all the tutorials and learn everything. But it can also be bad because they have all that context, context. They have all the previous iterations in their head and kind of finding the balance between when to bring, say, someone else from a different team within the uh, same company who has a game developer's mind. So they kind of approach things very differently than a player, but still they have fresh eyes. That is very valuable. And then bringing in players who will just think, "Am I having fun? Am I am I understanding this?" Instead of, "Well, why does this this work? Why does this work this way? How is this happening? Why how would I do this?" Sometimes. So there are different ways of testing, and it would be very beneficial to have recorded and like official testing in the sense that like it's planned even somehow. But all testing is valuable. <laughs> and yeah. uh, after hearing them thoughts, then Vince, go on. Yeah, I'm glad that after the NFT, there's something that we can all agree on. That's uh, <laughs> perfect. And, and I feel the same thing. It's like the earlier, the better. And I feel like, uh, especially seeing like as we're growing in tactile, it's something that we are learning to like bring more people in earlier. Let's, you know, talk about things as soon as possible. Uh, and there has been cases where it's like just a little bit of like internal, um, the, the prototype was just, you know, this is the concept. And you talk about, oh, what is this concept about? And then you think about, okay, what does this this, uh, this meta feature will mean? What are the, you know, the emotions that we're, we're trying to, to push with this? Uh, and, and then kind of like define that a bit. And it has been really nice. Also like working with UI artists when they have different concepts and uh, it's been a feature that I've worked with recently, um, bonus levels where we've, uh, you know, it's all about bling, it's all about cash, 
the documentation, I just put a picture of uh, Tom Haverford from Parks and Recreation. You know, it needs to be exclusive cash, blank, blah. And, and it's uh, every time that we went through it, it was like, but is it bling enough? And then trying to push until it's way too much. And then, okay, now we do a step back. So it feels like that also goes with the, with the play testing. And then you involve user research, it's even better because, for instance, you're uh, trying a new uh, storyline. And I'm not working on storylines, but I know that we've been, uh, been having some tasks even for upcoming uh, uh, games that, you know, they get a group of players and they go through the story, what, what they would expect. And then they figure out that, hey, you know, players are more interested in this feeling that the story can bring than this other feeling that it's uh, that is being brought. And I feel like that also, it's kind of a bit of the bridge between the AAA world from Emma and in our world of, of you know, mobile games in that story moment, you know, that feeling, we can give a different feeling. And I guess even like, you know, what are the competitors doing? How are, like, test the competitors? What are the emotions that you get by playing it? And you say, okay, we actually want to do better and we don't want this feeling that is a bit more negative. We want to be more of a positive feeling. So what can we bring forward to the story, to the characters, even to the gameplay? Um, shapes of levels. If you are a level designer and you're listening to this, make heart-shaped levels. It's very rare that people make uh, levels that are shaped like hearts, especially in their interviews. I love it when somebody makes a heart-shaped level because, you know, they're, they're invested into, you know, making the little art there. And it's just, we know from testing within our levels that, you know, you're going to have a better retention if early on you have levels that are shaped in a fun way that, you know, helps to bring, you know, the wholesomeness of the game if, if it's a wholesome game and so on. So, um, so I love that we can all agree on this, and it's uh, just a fantastic topic overall. Oh, fantastic. Well, it's a, it's a really good point to sort of end on with us all agreeing. <laughs> uh, but no, it's a really good question. So thank you very much, Vince. Uh, we've had some great questions from all, all three of the guests, so I really appreciate uh, your time and your thoughts within that. And I hope it's uh, been a really good episode for you all to join and for people to listen to. You'll have to watch out for our next episode with all three of you again talking about NFTs and crypto that's uh, <laughs> coming up in a couple of weeks. <laughs> but if anyone does like to uh, would like to be on the podcast, feel free to reach out to me. Um, but for now, we'll leave it there. I'd like to say thank you very much to Vince, Matt and Emma uh, for your participation today. And again, like I said, a great episode. So thank you very much, guys. And we'll see you all soon.